Our New Testament reading is from Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Also he said, Write these, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the fountain of the water of life without payment. He who conquers shall have this heritage, and I will be his God and he shall be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, as for murderers, fornicators, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their lot shall be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to go about in long robes and to have salutations in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation and he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the multitude putting money into the treasury. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury, for they all contributed out of their abundance but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had her whole living. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Let's uh, pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that as we think on these words of Scripture, that you would help us to know how we might inhabit them, how they might shape the way we actually go about living our human lives this coming week. So would you guide us in this reflection we ask in Jesus' name? Uh, amen. All right, so we're nearing the end of our series on Revelation. I think we have two more after this Sunday, after today, rather. And, and today, we're looking at this last word on heaven, this last word on heaven. And actually, we'll take two weeks on this word, because next week, we're going to look at the remainder of chapter 21, in which uh, John sort of fills out for us that heaven has a city-like 
quality, uh, which is important for us who are city dwellers. We're kind of curious about what that might mean uh, for the future, but uh, we'll get into that next week. But today, this last word on heaven. Um, In these first eight verses, John says essentially this, that God intends to fully and completely answer the prayers of the church, and specifically, the prayer that the church for generations, like day after day after day, has taken to their lips. In some part of the world, in some sector of even our own lives, we have prayed very simply, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. And what John begins to unpack in this section of Revelation, in this vision, this space of vision that he's having, is those words come true. (laughs) That, you know, remember back at the very beginning of the series on Revelation, we said this is apocalyptic literature. And one of the features of apocalyptic literature is that it is literature uh, that uncovers, right? It uncovers something that is otherwise hidden to us. And what's being uncovered in the book of Revelation is God's realm. We see things from God's perspective. Last week I used the metaphor of hindsight. It's as if we're at the very end of time and we're looking on uh, a reality that we're otherwise just not privy to. And here, John brings us into this space in which he beholds heaven on earth. He sees the prayer coming true. He sees what it looks like. Now remember, John is a pastor. (laughs) He is not, you know... The book of Revelation isn't in the Bible so that we have a nice handy-dandy roadmap, uh, that we have a sense of what's in the future just in an abstract way, but rather as a pastoral letter to us that is about not just the future but the now. How do we live life now in this space? And remember, the church of John's day, we said, was a church that was waiting, waiting for the kingdom of God to come, waiting for the reality of all that Jesus had said to actually happen. And they were discouraged, perhaps, because they didn't see it happening. Now, just think about your life this week. Were there places personally? Were there places in the cycle of the news cycle and feed that you read in which it sure looked like heaven was not on earth, right? Did you have that experience this week? And the answer is, yes, I had that experience because we're a waiting church also. And we're also a suffering church as they were a suffering church. In other words, sometimes... When you begin to live your life in alignment with Jesus in some meaningful way, with some integrity, with some, uh, some, some, some degree of, of, of deep affection that actually begins to change the way you love, it can be damaging. We can suffer because there's opposition in the world to the love of Jesus, actually. The preferred way of living is a very broken way of living. We live in a world in which we wait for the kingdom of God in which we sometimes experience just ordinary suffering because it isn't here. We taste that physically in our own bodies. We experience it relationally in our closest friendships, our closest relationships. We experience it politically and socially and culturally. We experience it economically. There's pervasive brokenness or the absence of anything that looks like or feels like God's kingdom come. John is writing this book pastorally for us and our sake. 
It's not a vision just for the sake of the future, as if we could just store up some happy knowledge about what is to come or get ready for what is, or, or to be happy about what is to come, but rather it is for the sake of the world now, for the life that we live now. Now, this is so important when we come to a word like heaven, because if you sort of think about what heaven is, if you sort of look at the popular usage of that word and, you know, Corey Stamper has, of course, taught us that Merriam-Webster is a wonderful resource for uncovering popular usage of words. So if you look up in Merriam-Webster, you're going to see definitions like this. When heaven is capitalized, it means the dwelling place of God. Or it means a spiritual realm that we pass into when we die. Popular usage. That is not the biblical usage. The standard way of thinking about heaven inside of the pages of scripture is this beautiful moment when God's world and our world are so united that our world is absolutely transformed by his presence. Heaven is earthly. So important for us to sort of hold on to that reality. And Revelation 21 begins to bring us into an experience, a hindsight moment of discovering that reality. We see that it is a word that's given to encourage, to warn, to guide, to lead us in how we actually express our human agency day in and day out. That the reality of who God is and who he intends to be toward us in the story of Christ would actually reshape the way we live now. When I was, you know, I grew up in a certain Christian context in the South and, um, and not to pick on that context because it, it was beneficial to my life as a Christian and my sense of what faith is about. But one of the, the, the harmful things sometimes that can happen inside of the Christian world is that we begin to take up the popular use of the word heaven. And we begin to think of it as just merely a future reality. And we think of it as a disembodied reality. And we think about it as a spiritual reality. But we don't understand how it leaves us living now. But the biblical writers are very concerned with what the future means for today. How we go about living life now. Heaven is never sort of this pie in the sky mentality. It's never simply about a ticket into an afterlife, but rather it is a connection with the work of God that includes his future that changes and alters the way we love today. Life now in this world. And these verses take us into that. So let me mention a couple of things, or a few things rather. So the first is this, heaven is material life in a material world. You know, if only Madonna were here to sing that song yet again. It's a material life in a material world. And that's so clear as you read through this ending on these last chapters of Revelation, right? Verse 1, a new heaven and a new earth, for the first creation had passed away, the sea and the sea was no more. We'll get to that in a moment. And verse 2, I saw the holy city Jerusalem coming out of heaven from God, but they're coming to earth. God, in, you know, N.T. Wright, in the beginning of the inside quote on our reflection quote, he comments and, and suggests, you know, God's intention has never been about dismissing this world, about giving up on this world. It's, it's never about that. It is always about the absolute transformation of this world. 
And so John, as he begins to imagine this moment, he doesn't imagine heaven as an ethereal reality or spiritual reality or a bodiless existence. He describes a very physical reality, God's world, so united with our world, earthly reality, physical reality, concrete reality, that he can actually say the old has passed away and the new has come. It's new creation. John imagines an earthly existence Not anything less than that. History, human history, is moving toward that reality, that day of fulfillment. In verse 5, he says, the one seated on the throne, that is the, the lamb who we've understood to be looking as if he was slain. So thinking very specifically about the lamb as a reference to who Jesus is and his death, his resurrection... The lamb seated on this throne says, I am making all things new. So important to hold on to. Because in a world like ours, when the cycle of newsfeed or when your own newsfeed of your own life is repeatedly telling you the story of ruin and sadness and sorrow and brokenness, it is so easy to forget that heaven has anything to say about the realities that you and I experience in our world. And we could become discouraged. You ever become cynical? (laughs) Do you ever take up cynicism as your preferred way of being human in the world? Do you ever take up discouragement as your preferred way of being human in the world? These texts are written so that we actually come into our present world differently. It's a material reality. Heaven is not retreat from this life, but the transformation by our union with God. It's material and earthly. Now, second, heaven on earth is marked specifically by union with God, right? It's interesting, the repeated idea of human beings and the creation itself getting back in sync and alignment with God's own presence. If you jump back to the very beginning of of, of the pages of Scripture, right, you go back into the Genesis story that we commented on just briefly last week. What is that story telling us about, the story of creation and the story of, of fall, right, except this, that our world and God's world are sadly separated because we've been on retreat from God's own self. And what we're told here is that, right, that that God is present to our world. He's present to us in a new way. And we hear that through this song, right, this celebrated presence of God with his creation, among his creation. At verse 3, the loud voices of heaven, of the throne, are singing one more time. But this time their song is about the fulfillment of our prayers. Heaven has come to earth. The home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and he will be with them. This is the core notion of heaven, this word with. God with us. Us with God. Living among one another in the presence of one another in a way that actually gives life, that feels absolutely like the best possible home. We dwell together in peace, Not only in peace, but in compassion. Interestingly, notice that their song imagines God doing this very beautiful parental thing, friendly thing, of wiping every tear from the eye. 
Have you ever been with a friend or maybe you're a parent and you've been with a child or you're a sibling and you've been with your younger brother or your younger sister in a moment when they've harmed themselves or they've hurt themselves or they've encountered some bad news, some hard news, some piece of suffering in this world? And what do they do in that space except cry? They begin to weep. They begin to have tears, right? Have you had those kinds of tears? And so interestingly here, the scripture imagines, right? In this particular vision, John sees and imagines God as the one who wipes our tears away. It's so important that we imagine God doing that work. He's not a God who's far off, but he's a God who wants to be near our suffering. He's not a God who's oblivious to the things that are going on in our lives. He gets you. He knows your story. And in this celebratory song right here in in Revelation chapter 21, we're just very simply reminded that in that day, God is the God who is so present to you in the most compassionate way possible, wiping your tears away, but once and for all time. And death is no more. God's compassionate presence with his creation, his compassionate presence with us. Third, the story of the lamb is essentially the tipping point for all that is happening in Revelation chapter 21. The story of the lamb, right, is the fullest manifestation of God's compassion, his desire to wipe away our tears. The story of Jesus is at the very core of that. So in verse 5, it is the lamb that's seated on the throne, right? He is the one who is speaking these trustworthy words. In other words, he's saying to the church of his day that is waiting and that is suffering, you can trust me. You can believe that these words will one day come true. Maybe not in your lifetime but they will come true and your life will be marked by the reality of my compassionate presence. The story of Jesus is at the very core of all that God is doing. And so we have this language once again of Jesus saying, I'm the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. In other words, it's a way of sort of celebrating the centrality of his story to every other story to every other reality, to every other aspect of the newsfeed that's going on inside of your life or our world at this particular moment. Jesus is at the core. God has raised him up and given him the name that is above every name, the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. Absolute power, compassionately oriented towards our lives for good, pastoral words for the church that is waiting and suffering, hanging on to the words of Jesus that very well could have gotten them killed and for many did. Holding on to the story of Christ even in the face of tremendous opposition. Whatever other stories were happening in their world and their lives at the moment, what is being reminded at this particular juncture is that it is, in fact, the story of Jesus that will go on forever and ever and ever. It's so important because in this world, if it's not that, what other hope can you have? Because we've never gotten it together enough to figure out a way forward in our own expression of humanity that leads to absolute thriving and wholeness and peace. 
and all the places that come to your mind about your own personal suffering or sadness is evidence of that. But what God is reminding the church that suffers is he says, I'm with you, and I'm bringing this story to completion, and you're a part of that. And so here Jesus very simply says this, to the one that is thirsty, to the one that is thirsty, come and drink of this stream of life. To the one who is thirsty, come and drink. In other words, do you want this world of heaven on earth? Do you want this world of goodness and beauty and truth and justice in which all people everywhere across every sector of human life thrives? That's the vision of heaven on earth. It's like everything, every place thrives. It flourishes. And I, you know, you pull these words to your mind and it's like, you know, it's, it's a lot easier to sort of talk about darkness than light. It's a lot easier to do a Good Friday service than an Easter service. We feel, if you're, if, if you're in a Good Friday service, you feel like we're just being honest, right? And if you're in an Easter service, what do you feel like? This is, this is, this is silly. Can this be true? I don't feel like it's true. And what Jesus here is saying to the church in this particular moment of their life, a suffering and a waiting moment of life, in which, yes, it's punctuated by joy, yes, it's punctuated by life, but Jesus is saying, do you want this world that I promise, a world of goodness and justice and truth and all flourishing everywhere for all people that on earth do dwell? Do you want that reality in which tribalism is gone, Hatred is gone. Every manifestation of selfishness and hoarding is gone. All scarcity is gone. And it's only the abundance of God's presence and our presence to one another that is left behind. That's it. Do you thirst for a world like that? And if you do thirst for a world like that, the only one in whom that world comes true is Jesus. And so the offer is, if you thirst for that, come to the Lamb. Come to his story. Take it up. Try it on. Try to think about what would it look like if I took Jesus seriously at his word this week. How would that change the way I'm present to my own suffering and to the suffering of others? If I really believe that he took and absorbed all pain and suffering and death and sin unto himself. And God affirmed that by raising him up into brand new life and glorifying his life in the life of heaven. If I really believe that, how would that give me hope in my place of despair? How would that empower me in my places of cynicism? How would that lead me to exercise my agency as a human being differently as one who is loved and who loves in return? Can you see that just maybe if there's a way out of the ruin that the story of Jesus' life given, raised, and glorified might be at the very center of it? That's the picture John is painting for us. And so if you're thirsty for that, he just says, come and drink, take it in. Now, fourth and finally, heaven on earth is marked by the absence of the powers, all powers that oppose God and diminish human life. 
Heaven is marked by the absence of evil. It's marked by the absence of anything and anyone, whether spiritual or temporal, that could in any way be oppositional to this vision of the good life that God has, a world of justice and truth and goodness and love. It's marked by the absence of that. It's a place of flourishing in every possible way. It is unconstrained flourishing, and there is no potential for its absence. Why? Because all power, all opposition to that world and that life has evaporated. It's gone. Verse 1. John offers a little bitty teaser here. He says, the sea was no more. That's always such a curious little statement in the Bible, right? Because in our vernacular, in the way we popularly talk about the sea, we like it, at least most of us do, right? We go down the shore. We, we do things like that. We plan holiday and vacation around going to the beach, a trip to the seaside. It seems like such a wonderful time. And some of you like to cruise, right? Yeah, we, we enjoy the presence of the beach. But in the Bible, the sea is not used metaphorically to speak of holiday, but it's opposite. It's used to sort of help us think about the chaotic waters of the sea, the catastrophe of the sea, the danger of the sea, a source of evil even. And what John says here is he, when he saw the sea no more, it is a metaphorical way of simply saying evil is all gone. And the potential for evil is all gone. It is no more. Wipes away every tear, and death is no more. Thy will be done on earth as in heaven. Thy kingdom come, right, for the sake of earthly life. And what John describes is that it's done. It's finished. It's happened because the story of Jesus has reached its resting place, its conclusion. But the hard truth is this. Is that scripture in general, right, and Revelation in particular, respects human agency. That is so hard to hold on to. Uh, it's a value that most of us share. Like, we don't want anyone stepping on our ability to choose things, right? We, uh, I remember when my kids, you know, when they passed through those sort of terrible twos or beautiful, lovely twos, uh, and they begin to say things like, I do it myself, right? You know, there's like this, this moment when a child begins to be aware that to be human is to have agency, I become an explorer of the universe, an explorer of the world. And the Bible really respects your right, your createdness in the image of God and his likeness, your capacity for that exploration. And there's a good thing about that or a good aspect to that, but there's a hard aspect to that. And we see that here in these verses. So here from this vantage point, what is uncovered in this moment of hindsight John describes that there are two ways of living with Jesus. Just two simple responses. You come to the story or you don't. You thirst for that world and you begin to understand and you take the risk of trying on that story. You thirst and you find yourself satiated. Or you don't try it on. You push it away, you move away in opposition. You see, Jesus' story is profoundly good news, but it is also hard news 
Those who conquer inherit these things, Jesus says, and I will be their God and they will be my people. But not the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, the murderers, the fornicators, the sorcerers, the idolaters, the liars. They inherit a very different reality, this lake that burns with fire and sulfur. I don't like to talk about hell. But sometimes it just shows up and you have to sort of reference it and talk about it in a way. So let me say just a couple of things. The idea of hell or the idea of suffering like this feels really offensive to many of us. It feels hard. It's hard truth. Um, It even is a controversial piece within the theological realm. Pastors don't agree on what these texts all mean. But everyone at the time that would have listened to these words knew full well that as they heard that laundry list of sins listed, that their lives mapped onto them. That's what the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthian church, right? He lists another similar laundry list of sins, right? Just a list of sort of behaviors that were then thought and understood to be very pathological to not only our life with God, but our life internal to ourselves. Paul says it's such for some of you. And so when the church in that early moment of its life is listening to John sort of articulate these words that feel so jarring at times, they would have clearly understood that these were behaviors and ways of living human life that don't take you closer to God, but further away, that take you further from yourself, not closer to yourself, that there's a pathology in these ways of practicing, if you will, our humanity. There was some general consensus about that. And if we were to sort of poll ourselves and we said, hey, what's your list? (laughs) You know what? Every one of us would have a list of behaviors and patterns and ways of being human that we do not believe should be in heaven on earth. Because those ways of being human, those ways of expressing our humanity represent to us not goodness and justice and truth and love, but evil and their opposite. And that's all that John is doing here is he's simply saying that those behaviors, those patterns of living life away from God will be gone forever and only flourishing in its place, only beauty and love in its place. We have our own words, personally, culturally, relationally, politically, and so on. The novelist uh, Charles Williams, one of the lesser known of Lewis's friends, I suppose, has a little book called The Descent into Hell. It's a book in which, it's a little novella in which he imagines human life as a pilgrimage away from God, hence the title, Descent into Hell. And what he articulates in that is that as we go through life, moving away from God, we are thus also moving away from his likeness and his image. That we become less and less and less and less of ourselves. And if you've ever seen a person who has lived life steadily away from God in the wake of their own suffering and grief, you have likely found that person very challenging to be around in their old age. Because their life is marked by bitterness and difficulty and a a lack of love that is just so hard. It takes every bit of love for you to get near that person. The descent into hell, our lives moving steadily away from 
God's presence and his likeness. If you want to sort of have an image, another image to sort of associate with William's idea, you might think of his friend and colleague J.R. Tolkien's, you know, Lord of the Rings trilogy, right? In which the character Gollum is what? A descent into hell. A lesser version of himself. The further and further he gets away from truth and society and love. A picture for us to think about our own lives as participating regularly in a descent into hell. So when we gather as the church, it's just so important that we remember that we map onto these words too. There's not a word on the list that someone in the room today couldn't identify with as being characteristic of the story that we've lived in life. And we understand its brokenness and its ruin and its sorrow. And it is to us that Jesus says, if you're thirsty, if you're thirsty, come and drink. If you're thirsty for reversal, come and drink. In other words, journey toward God, not away from him. Get closer to him, not further away. And the way we do that is in the path of the lamb that was slain and raised. Every one of us is broken. St. Augustine said that it's the only way for us to honestly stand near one another is to identify myself when I meet you as, hi, I'm Tuck, I'm a sinner. So that we stand before each other with complete humility, not thinking we have a leg up on one another. And we are all in a position of needing to be thirsty for the reality that God is describing. And this is where the church is so much like an AA meeting in which we take the grace of God at face value, the invitation to the thirsty to come and drink, and we actually come to the Lord at face value, believing that grace is substantively real. Take him at face value. We show up and we display some honesty about ourselves, where we are on the journey, what it was like for us this week. I mean, that's what we're doing in that space of confessing our sin together. We're just trying to create an honest connection with God and with one another so that we recognize that we are on this spiritual journey and that we are not always consistently on the path that leads to Jesus. So we're honest. And what do we do? We just work the plan. We take the words of the liturgy that we say week after week after week. We participate in the Lord's table week after week after week. Why? Because we're working the plan and we're asking that God would renew our imagination for the world that he promises. So whatever I've done in my week that's cultivated other ideas about what God might promise or what I wish he'd promise, I just come back into line. I say, well, what did he actually promise? And I bring my loves back to that promise. And I say, I really want the world that you promised God. In the Bible, heaven is a place, a moment in time in which God's world and our world are perfectly united so that it's a place in which dreams of justice and goodness and truth are thriving actually begin to come true forever. That's what heaven is. And today, we wait for that reality. And this whole week, you're going to wait for that reality. You're longing for that reality. And until we get into that moment of perfect union when it is fully present, heaven is a way of life. 
It's a way of loving in the world that is reflective of God's future. It is an imperfect way of loving. It is an imperfect reflection, but it is a practice of life that takes us near the love of God in such a way that we begin to express it in our lives. And in the words of the Lord's Prayer, when we just simply ask that we would be forgiven as we, are, as we forgive. In other words, we reflect God's forgiveness in the world, that we would share daily bread as we are given daily bread, that we would be delivered from evil now, today, and ultimately when heaven comes, because earth has no sorrows that heaven can't heal. That's the hope of this text. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would meet us in these words as we continue to think about them in our minds and our hearts, and that you would help us to be thirsty for the world that you promise in Jesus, and you would help us to be persons and a community of persons that comes because we are thirsty, and who finds that you meet us in such a way that we are returned to the world at the end of our service to live very differently this week than we lived this week past. So meet us in this, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.